you probably already read about it already, but did you see the thing about Tony Hawk's like writing a children's book? No, I did not see this. Oh, really? No, no. Like about this um, baby alligator or something? Did you not? Did you really not hear about it? I really did not. So you don't know about Tony Hawk's prose gator? <laughs> I'm going to need a laugh for the edit. I think, I think you should go yourself. My name's Hunter, and I'm joined as I am every uh, stinking week with uh, my good friend and co-host, or my good co-host and friend. Is that which one do you think is better? If I had a choice, I'd prefer to be a better co-host than I am a friend. <laughs> okay, so my good co-host and friend, what's your name, you little monkey? Uh, Hugh. All right, and what is this that the listener is listening to right now? I mean, hopefully they're already aware of what they have decided to start playing in their podcast. Well, let's, let's say uh, hypothetically Later. there's a new listener who has no idea what this is about. How did they come across it? I don't know. Start playing it. Uh, that's, that's immaterial. These are questions that do not need to be answered by us. But should we cater to our diehard followers or, or this random theoretical stranger? We should ca- cater to everyone. Hmm, interesting. And if someone doesn't want to hear the little thing where you take two seconds to explain the podcast, they can just skip it. All right. What, what is this, you? Uh, this is Project A+. Or did you say that already? I did not say it. I don't think. I can't remember. It doesn't matter. Okay. I'm sure you'll uh, find out later. Play the tape. <laughs> this is uh, Project A+, a show that was once more ambitious than it is now. Mm-hmm. But what is it now? Uh, it's a show where we talk about all the films in a week that we have watched. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Uh, fucking construction site. Still still going. Still fucking finish that flat. Uh, all right, bro. Uh, so, well, flats. well, something that sort of has changed in the last couple of weeks is we've turned this into a vague game type thing, right? Yep. Now, last week there was no consequence for me losing because uh, I didn't have any TV that I had watched, and the same is true this week actually. <laughs> so, mm. actually, that's not true. That's actually not true now. Well, I guess this is—it's kind of ambiguous whether this would be considered television or not. But we could talk about it if I lose. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the the rules of this game is we have to determine who watched the most films uh, in the given week, right? Right. We start off as we have every week we've done this, which is to say last week and that's it, by attempting to get a guess how many films the other person had watched. Is that, is that correct? That's right. All right. So uh, since I... No, 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 no. You're skipping ahead of all the uh, preliminary nonsense that we usually have to trudge <laughs> through before we get to the exciting bit. I, I, don't, I don't want to talk about anything from my life. Well, you, you do have a good reason not to talk about things from your life, I suppose, but... Uh... I can talk about my life endlessly. What? Okay. What? What's up in your life? Have you gone to a protest? No. There is actually one scheduled for this coming weekend, I believe. Nice. 
I'll, I'll, I'll excise this segment of the podcast anyway because we don't want to compete with uh, the definitive take provided by Adam Savage and Co. <laughs> uh, I'm not going to listen to that. I am going to listen to yeah, it. I know. <laughs> it's so annoying because, like, I quite enjoyed listening to their podcast, even though it wasn't great, and even though their opinions on films were shitty. But, like, it was kind of comforting to listen to them. It's, it's a pretty enjoyable podcast as far as just people chatting goes, right? But uh, since the since the pandemic, they dedicate like a huge chunk of every week talking about it, and it's so annoying. I don't want to hear about it. Like I I follow all the news about it all the time. I don't want to hear a trivial podcast talk about it that much. I don't mind if they say how are you going? Yeah, I'm going okay. But they talk at length, like every week. I'm like come on, <laughs> this is not really helping people because yeah. people don't go to still untitled the Adam Savage Project for updates on the coronavirus. That's true. They may have some, you know, cursory concern about the well welfare of the host, but that concern will probably be dwarfed into insignificance based on the uh, greater struggles that they probably suffer relative to, uh, you know, people who can still make a living and live comfortably. That's true. Like the hosts of Still Untitled, The Adam Savage Project, yes, right? and perhaps they would like something to take their mind off their troubles for a few exactly. hours. Exactly. You know, it presses her just already got you, bro. It's okay. I'm annoyed at a lot of like podcasts and stuff that that dedicate too much time to it, mm. that don't really have business dedicating time to it. Like I don't like ours, right? Or analysis podcast. Yeah, unlike ours, we've been doing this like every week and, and talking about it every week as well. I know. <laughs> and I'm going to talk at length more as well. But anyway, um, there are. I want to actually shout out. There are some good podcasts that have come into existence because of the pandemic. Uh-huh. Um, which is a category of podcast that I, I don't want to explore. But but there is one one podcast that uh, has been a source of joy and was mm. forged uh, out of the fire of a pandemic. That podcast is called Home Cooking. Uh-huh. And uh, it's hosted by Samin Nosrat of uh, uh, Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat. Ah, uh, yes. Whatever the name of her book and cooking show was. And uh, Rishikesh Hirway of the West Wing Weekly Podcast, I think, originally. Oh, God. <laughs> no, I'm not going um, to listen to this fucking podcast. <laughs> but but uh, latterly, Song Exploder. Uh-huh. I think he might even be on another podcast as well. Well, but, uh, uh, I'm sorry to say, Hugh, that if you're on a podcast that's called West Wing Weekly, I believe that you should be <laughs> killed in the street. And actually, one of the episodes of Home Cooking features a cameo by uh, a West Wing alum. So there you go. Oh, which one? Bradley Woodford? <laughs> no. Uh, I'll tell you which. Hang on, I have to find it. I think it's the guy who came on to replace Rob Lowe, or like to fill the void that Rob Lowe left, apparently, um, and that no one really likes. But he was on Sports Night. Mm. Uh, let me find his name. God. I can't imagine listening to watching the fucking West Wing. He's not even listed on their website. That's annoying. Isn't that annoying? I should just look at my phone. God, let's start. Let's fucking start. Okay, hang on, hang on. Get to the no, 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 no. This is important. This is important. This isn't. This we'll we'll get there. I have to finish uh, my show. It's now. almost been thirty minutes. <laughs> Fuck you. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, is it Josh Molina? Is that a person? That's the guy who's the host of it, I think. 
Yeah, but he's on the show. He was on West Wing. So the co-host of the show was on West Wing. Oh, well, that sounds even worse. <laughs> <laughs> but like, you know, yeah, yeah, that's him. That's him. That's the guy. Josh Molina. Oh, this guy looks like a loser. Ah, so he's got three podcasts. Oh, my God. <laughs> so I think originally it was the West Wing Weekly. Yes. Uh, with Josh Molina. Was it Josh Molina? Yes. John Molina. It's Josh oh, Molina. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, then, then it was Song Exploder, which is a good podcast if you're interested in music, which I am. I'm not. And then more recently a podcast called Partners in which he talks to people who have engaged on a creative enterprise together and discusses their partnership, right? Um, and then there's this podcast called Home Cooking, which is specifically for the pandemic. So far, it's only four episodes. It was intended as a limited series. I don't know if there'll be any more. But they're very agreeable company, and they just answer listener queries about cooking, uh, especially in the current climate. Wait, Josh Molino is just the... I don't understand... Who's the other guy? No, I'm just confused. The guy who hosts the podcast is that I'm not talking Josh about is Richard Cash Okay. No, not. That's why no, no. I was so, confused. Okay, so Home Cooking, <laughs> Home oh, Cooking is a podcast hosted yes, by yes. No, Samin Nosrat of Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat. No, I understand it. Richard Cash Hewey. No, I understand <laughs> the podcast West Wing Weekly co-hosted no, no, by no, Josh West Wing alum on... Josh Molina. Okay, okay, gotcha. Right? But it doesn't look like, is he is he on every episode? No, and then he's on of what West Wing Weekly? No, of the this Cookie Joe. No, no, no. He's on. He's a guest on one episode of Home <laughs> Cooking. Right? They have a number of guests, including Yo Yo Ma, uh, Wesley Morris, uh. <laughs> W Kamar Bell, and uh, Stella Parks. You know, number of high-profile guests, and they just talk about cooking. And um, Rishikesh Hiwe makes puns. That's basically the show. It sounds like very fucking torture. I wish there was more than four episodes. So I just wanted to say, I hate podcasts about the pandemic, unless it's a news podcast, and even then I kind of hate it. But I'm glad that it made this podcast happen. I feel like I feel like news and podcasts sounds like the it's a stupid thing. It's just like radio news. It's just yeah, except for you know, radio news is also dumb. For radio analysis. No, it's not. What? No, it's not. Don't lie it can to yourself. Be, in theory. Oh, it's, theory, just, it's just like television. It's just like television news. The only reliable source of news is Twitter. <laughs> anyway, in the absence of you talking about your life, oh god, do you have something you want to talk about your own? And certain potential dramatic turns, which will remain unspoken. I will talk about mine. Okay. Yeah, oh, boy. So this isn't specific to the pandemic, but the pandemic is is kind of related to it. No, I guess it is specific to the pandemic. It's about the pandemic. I'm going to talk about the pandemic a little bit, but my experience of it via Man, I, I feel like the hours that I work. I feel like the the uh, right. pandemic. I just don't even. It does, it's not even like a thing anymore to me. Well, no, it's kind of been supplanted by <laughs> definitely more in America and in your country. Yes. Yeah. Um, anyway, anyway, back to me. Back to me. So uh, after having my hours steadily decrease since the pandemic reached my shores. I had my hours reduced to zero last week, as you will remember. I do. And I faced an uncertain future. Mm. Now is your future certain? Well, we'll get to that. Oh, boy. But uh, I didn't feel entirely hopeless at the time. I knew that from the beginning of June, cafes and restaurants in Victoria 
will be able to accommodate 20 dine-in patrons and that that number will be increased to 50 uh, by the 22nd of June and then 100 come mid-July. Surely, I thought, surely that would result in an uptick in business at the sandwich factory. Mm. In fact, my supervisor said as much. She said, hopefully it's just this one week and then we'll be back to something approaching normal as we progress through June, right? Uh-huh. Didn't use those words. I'm paraphrasing. So uh, I was like, okay, fine, fine. So I quickly reconciled with the prospect of uh, ramping up my binge consumption of box wine, mm. tube chips, and Babylon 5. Wait, what are, what are tube chips? You don't know what tube chips are? No. Like Pringles? Well, I buy off-brand Pringles because they're cheaper. And I actually also think they're better. Like, Pringles is a really good product, right? Yeah, I agree. And they get credit for inventing it if they invented it. But, like, the if you eat original Pringles, it gets to a point where it's too much, right? Yeah, I agree with that. But when it comes to the, the plain originals, I actually prefer off-brand versions because they're not as well manufactured. Mm. So the actual uh, individual chips are brittler. Mm. And therefore lighter, so it's actually uh, easier to consume a large amount of them, like an entire tube, <laughs> as I tend to do. Yeah, I did the same thing. Anyway, so so I just thought, you know, what's more, what's what's one more week if I'm soon to relinquish my nights to the sandwich factory more once again, right? Mm-hmm. This will be uh, one last hurrah um, before I rejoin the workforce and reclaim my former belt hole. Mm, I'm excited to hear what the conclusion of the story is. I have a prediction mm. and we'll see if it comes true. Mm. We'll see if it comes true. Yet, as, as the weekend of my week off approached, mm. I noticed I was harboring a lingering uncertainty. What if I wasn't contacted at all and it just continued on like this week on week, right? Would I be forced to comply with the ominously titled mutual obligations that services Australia had temporarily deferred in the wake of the pandemic. Mm. That essentially means you applying for a certain number of jobs and attending seminars or whatever as part of your deal to receive your, your welfare payments, right? Mm. Then I thought of the, uh, the opposite scenario. What if it was a return to full-time employment? Mm. As, as jobs go... I'm happy at the sandwich factory, <laughs> but it ain't box wine, tube chips, and Babylon 5. That's, that's irrefutable. Yeah, that's true. Most things are. More's the pity. Like, like, like this podcast, for instance. I imagine if I didn't have to do these podcasts, I could just <laughs> <laughs> dedicate all my time <laughs> to those activities. But, but yeah, anyway, back to the story. So fuck it, I thought. Come what may, I'm not going to let this uncertainty stop me from living this week to the fullest. Mm. Then... Quite unexpectedly, I received a message instructing me to come to work for the Sunday night slash Monday morning shift. Mm. A shift I didn't even work on my most recent rosters. So that basically indicated to me that I must be going back to full time. If they need me for a day that I wasn't even working before, Mm. then, you know, must be back to normal. Mm. I sighed, awash in mixed feelings, but ultimately I thought... This is good. This is good for my health, good for my waistline, and of course, <laughs> good for my bank account. Uh, but again, it's also not box wine, tube chips, and Babylon 5. That's undeniable. But anyway, I thought, you know, it was good while, while it lasted. 
Um, I've, I've plowed my way through a significant portion of Babylon 5 at this point. The world was going to intrude eventually. So I ventured out just after midnight on a chilly Monday morning and walked the empty streets to the factory door. Uh -huh. And I garbed myself in uh, my protective clothing. Uh -huh. Walked in and my supervisor said, yeah, so this is your only shift for the week. <laughs> yeah, I uh, was guessing that was how I was going to end. <laughs> how do you feel now? Are you, are you happy? Well, I worked in a rather distracted state mm. that night, making uh, minor mistakes and such here and there. <laughs> I was dreaming. I was dreaming of the box wine, tube <laughs> trips, and Babylon 5 episodes I would shortly be free to consume mm. once again. That is my story. Well, I'm happy for you, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully this is the last week of that happening. You can go back to full employment soon. No, no. no. So at the moment, it's they're only saying it's going to be max one shift a week. Oh, oh my God. Something changes. So. <laughs> well, that's why. <laughs> but that's, that's pending what's going to happen if things do open up more. Mm. Sure. So if nothing changes, then I get one shift a week is what I'm saying. But if things open up more, then you'll get more. Mm -hmm. What was actually weird, I'll add this little nugget to the story, is that while I was uh, enjoying this week off, mm -hmm. I went across the road to a grocery store mm -hmm. uh, to secure some items for dinner. Mm. And quite unexpectedly, I, I noticed that they had uh, products from our sandwich factory. <laughs> <laughs> Did you purchase some? Um no. You, you didn't uh, want to enjoy the products of your labor? I did not. You should join a union. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> did they have a union there? I have no idea. You should start one if there, if, if you uh, have one. If, if there's not one. There's power in the union. There's power in a union? Or is it there's power in the union? I don't know. Power in a union. The Billy Bragg nonsense. Do you know Billy Bragg? Nope. Really? Really. So he's a British singer-songwriter. Oh, boy. <laughs> who is uh, outspoken on sort of left-wing issues. Mm. And is famous for singing in his uh, uniquely British accent over a sparse backdrop. Uh, I don't know, actually know how the tune of There Is Power in a Union goes, but I've got the lyrics up here and I'll do an impression of his voice. Oh, Jesus there Christ. There is power in the factory, power in the land, power in the hand of the worker. <laughs> I, can't, I can't believe you respond to me telling you potentially distressing news if about my life. If we understand, there is power in a union. Imagine writing that song and wanting, imagine wanting to hear that song. <laughs> Unless you're, like, on the picket lines or something, right? Uh, I bet it's set back leftist causes back 50 years at least. Yes. All right. Uh, are, you <laughs> are you fucking finished? I'm writing that song. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, anyway. well, we're going up on 40 yeah. minutes now. <laughs> All right. Let's go. Let's go. This is, this is going to be an all-time classic episode. Uh, I was hoping this would be a short one. <laughs> <laughs> All right, All right uh, Hunter, Hunter, ha uh, bonus features time. Play the theme, play the theme. Bonus features, bonus, bonus features, bonus features, bonus, bonus features. Thank you. 
Uh, Hunter. No, I'm no. going to guess how many films no, you've no, watched. No, 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 no. I have to guess first because I lost last round, right? No, no, I guess you get to guess first. No, no, no. I'll guess first. Okay. Well, I dictate terms because I won. Yeah, I do sure, what I want. Sure. You do what you want. I won again, like two weeks in a row. You did. That's true. Three weeks in a row, really. Because you included like an audio commentary on that. <laughs> oh my god, I can't believe. I'm smashing you. I can't believe you fucking still our feet on that. Okay. okay. <laughs> so, uh, my <laughs> guess is my guess is for the number of films that you watched this week, mm-hmm. today being the 3rd of June in Australia, the 2nd of June in America, uh-huh. the last week encompassing seven days prior to that. Mm-hmm. My guess is that you, Hunter Sawyer, mm-hmm. Of the Richmond, Virginia Sawyers, <laughs> watched four films. Okay, uh, what makes you? How did you arrive at that conclusion? Mm, you haven't been watching that many films of late, and it is possible that spurned on by the competition with me, mm. you would have increased your volume of consumption uh, mm-hmm. this week. Mm. Uh, I'm I'm thinking that uh, you're not quite at that stage yet. Mm. So. I went for a more modest number. Let's look at Letterboxd. Let's see here, okay? And I haven't uh, looked at Letterboxd. Like part, I think part of the game here has see. to be the honor system that we don't look at one another's Letterboxd. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, now uh, let's, let's, let's count how many I got on Letterboxd here. One, two, three, four. That doesn't sound right, though, Hugh. I have to say, I feel like I watched more films. Well, luckily, I, I have another method of uh, keeping my uh, record of, of the things I've been listening to. Okay, so should I check on that, too, just to make sure? Listening to? Or watching, rather. We're including albums now. <laughs> well, you listen to movies, too, you dumb piece of shit. <laughs> At least uh, the ones that I watched this week, because I don't watch any of that silent crap. <laughs> All right, uh, let's see. Okay, right, so Letterboxd is four. Let's check in my, uh, my little book that I keep all the, the stuff I can see. Okay, ready? So you're going covert as well. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. Okay, let's see. So one, two, three, four. Okay, yeah, it's about the same number. But I, this always stops on Friday, you. I don't. I guess there's more entries in here. Okay, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Uh, I, I think I also watched one today, so let's say 13. Is that is that the number you're looking for? Is that a fact? It is a fact. <laughs> yes, yeah, I watched 13 films this week. Mm-hmm. So I was right to suspect that you would do this at some point, but I was wrong in that I suspected it would be later than this week. Shame, shame. All right, so uh, shall I guess how many you've watched? Yes, please. <laughs> Well, let's see. I bet you felt that, you know, my week competition the last couple of weeks uh, meant you could sort of rest on your laurels. Uh, and I think you, you watched uh, five films. Five films. Mm. Interesting. Or zero. Five or zero. That's the two guesses I have. <laughs> <laughs> you don't get two guesses. You have to lock in one. <laughs> five. Five. You lock in five? Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm gonna say zero. Okay, let me let me count. Let me count. Because I too have a shadow list <laughs> hidden from the glare of the spotlight. Uh, just gonna update my uh, letterbox real quick. 
Let me just uh, have a look. <laughs> Let's uh, see. Oh, it's, it's written down there that you have no films. Wow, what a surprise. <laughs> let me just count. This will take some time. One, two. Mm, that's good. Two. That's a good start. Oh, what's this? Another three. <laughs> that's three. Yeah. Let me uh, just turn my metaphorical page. Four. <laughs> no. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, that's a good number. Four. I'm happy with that. Yeah, yeah. Wait. Hang on. Five. Mm. Oh, that's bad. Mm. Five. That seems like a good. Uh, 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 was that the number you guessed? Just, just refresh me <laughs> and the listeners. I know. I guess. Five? I guess. I guess better? zero. <laughs> you guessing zero now? No, no five. I'm allowing I you guess, to change your guess. I guess five. I guess five. All right. Fine. So I was up to five. Let me just turn the page here, see if there's any more films that I... Ah. <laughs> yes, a film I watched this very morning. Bringing the total up to 14. No, six. <laughs> mm. So you both... Six, uh, six films. We both sort of pushed ourselves this week. Yeah. But I wouldn't have bothered if I knew you were like, <laughs> was on the way to <laughs> I, I try to go for because I don't want to watch films. <laughs> I try to, to go for fourteen, but I couldn't quite do it. Oh well, next time, next week. Mm. So uh, yeah, unfortunately, you trounced me. You more than doubled my performance. It destroyed you. Now I never have. Now I never have this again because <laughs> you're never going to defeat me now. Well, if you continue that pace, probably not. No, I I won't be able to. All the energy got sucked out of me. I did watch four films yesterday, though. So, you know. Wow. Yeah. All right. Uh, do you want to do... Drill. Uh, you do one, then I do two, and then go from there? Yeah. Okay. Who wants to go first? You go first. Because my first one, I kind of have to do two at once. <laughs> There's no real way around it. That's not true. <laughs> I mean, there is a way around it, but it would be silly. Okay, well, then do two at once, I guess. Okay. So the first film I watched last week was Dark Star. Mm, the Carpenter film. Indeed. So I was incensed while editing last week's bonus features. <laughs> Not the one we recorded, but the one that was released last week. <laughs> I was incensed about your comments concerning John Carpenter's first and best film, Dark Star. Uh, a masterpiece that you consigned to the inglorious three and a half star bin. <laughs> I think I even, I think I even like that Carpenter film I watched this week more than uh, I like uh, Dark Star. I guess I watched two Carpenter films this week, but we'll get to that. We'll get to that. But I'd been meaning to revisit the film anyway, but your comments provided the catalyst I needed. Uh-huh. So I fired up my DVD that very night, and by that very night, I mean the night I was editing the podcast. Which, uh, which version did you watch? We will get to that. Soon. Oh boy! Now, now we we discussed this <laughs> briefly on the. Uh, loser. <laughs> we discussed this briefly on the uh, aforementioned. <laughs> you totally did, didn't you? <laughs> we we're not going to bury the lead here. We discussed this briefly on uh, that aforementioned episode of Bonus Features, but there are there are different versions of the film out there, and I've done some additional research into how exactly they differ. Mm-hmm. So before I get to my comments on whether Dark Star held up for me on this most recent viewing, mm -hmm. I think it would be instructive for me, for you, for the listeners to quickly break down its development. Oh, boy. Okay, please. So bear with me. Bear with me. 
This is going to be a prolix episode. <laughs> ways than one. Well, it's already it's already uh, done that. So just remember, we have to record an entire another podcast after that. I know, I know. High on vermouth and bananas yeah, as well. Yeah. Um, so the project was conceived by. I won't go into the whole history, but more of the history of the different versions. So the project was conceived by uh, Carpenter while he was a film student at the University of Southern California. The original conception of the film was just truck drivers in space, mm. and then Dan and Ben came on board, they wrote the screenplay together, and they both worked in the film. Um, it was originally funded by the university as a school project. I think the original uh, amount of the budget was like $1,000, and then eventually it was 6000 And it was completed over the course of a few summers in fits and starts, uh, based on how much funding they could secure and when they could secure it, right? It took, it took quite a long time to make, relatively speaking, for a student mm. film. Eventually, a 45-minute version was completed. Um, initially, they tried to get it accepted on the international student film circuit, but they were told it was too long because those films are usually 20 minutes or less. So they ended up with something that was too long to be a marketable student film, too short to be a feature. So this is the first version. This is version one. And essentially, it's the core of what, what is in the final film. So we meet these space truckers who are bombing unstable planets to make way for future settlements. Um, we have the robot bomb that malfunctions. We have the philosophical discussion with the bomb. I think it ends the same way, pretty much. It's basically what you saw in the version you watched, but without the beach ball alien segment and without the asteroid field interference scene. Now, Carpenter had worked on an Oscar-winning short film back when the Oscars had a student film category, interestingly enough. And uh, he was put out by what he perceived to be a lack of recognition for his contribution, and also the fact that the university effectively owned the final product. Mm. So what they decided to do was essentially steal the film away from the university, because by rights, the university having funded it and supplied a lot of the resources, did have some legitimate, legitimate claim to the film, mm. they stole it away from them and uh, got some additional funding from a Canadian distributor to get it to feature length. They added a full 50 minutes of additional padding, mm. resulting in a 95-minute version, which is version 2. Then the producer Jack Harris became involved, thanks to famed child murderer John Landis. And Carpenter and, and, and just, to, screen. just to be clear, child and adult murder. Okay, yeah, fair enough. That's true. Then Carpenter, so Carpenter and O'Bannon screened this new feature-length 95-minute version of the film to Jack Harris. Mm. He was not impressed. And there's some interesting anecdotes about what this additional padding comprised, because a lot of it has been lost and is not available. The opening of the film in this version something we, we don't see in any of the versions we can access, was like this drawn-out sequence where the computer is trying to get the crew members to get out of bed, mm. which sounded kind of great. I think a lot of the padding was just adding a lot of hangout stuff with the crew members, mm. which I think actually is uh, one of the strengths of the final product, and I think I could have done with more of it, actually. Mm. Yeah, just less of the, the guy chasing around that fucking beach ball. 
and, and we'll get to that. But like, there's quite an interesting sequence that is described. That yeah, I, sorry, that sorry. Sp- more specifically, uh, less of Dan O'Bannon chasing around the food. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so like, there's like an extended gag that Jack Harris describes in an interview. So the computer tries various tactics to get them to wake up and uh, like turns on the, the sprinklers and stuff like that. And the only thing that gets them out of the bed is telling them that breakfast is served. So there's good, good stuff there, but Jack Harris didn't like it. So he cut a lot of that out and he cut so much of it out that the resulting duration was too short for a feature. So then he had to get Carpenter and O'Bannon to film new sequences to pad it back up to feature length again. Mm. It's not actually, I'm not actually 100% clear at this point what version they filmed the beach ball stuff for. Mm. If it was the... If, I think it might have been the Jack Harris version and not the 95-minute version, but I'm not actually entirely clear on that. Mm. There's not a lot of detail I could find about exactly what else was in that 95-minute version. Uh, anyway, the, the beach ball stuff was more elaborate in conception than it ended up being. Obviously, the alien itself was a result of budget limitations. But more than that, um, there was supposed to be like a whole host of aliens being kept aboard the ship mm. that we see before he goes, O'Bannon goes on this chase with the beach ball. So then the Jack Harris version is, is the extended version. That's version three. That's the one that eventually got released in the first place. Then there's a number of other versions. So there's a, the, v, the original VHS release, I believe Dan O'Bannon did some sort of cut on that. He supervised the release of that version. And then when it was released on Laserdisc, he did a new director's cut of that. And the DVD I have lists two versions. An original version that runs like 70 minutes mm-hmm. and uh, an extended version that runs like 83 minutes. The extended version is the original theatrical version. So it's quite the misleading I labeled I on a I number of watched, these DVD releases. I believe. That's the one you watched, yeah. The that the one on, if it's 83 minutes, that's the original can, theatrical release. I'll, I'll check right now, but you keep on talking. So, so that's, the, that's the version that existed, right? That was the version that was put out into the world. My DVD lists an original version that runs like 70 minutes based on the runtime. Yeah, I watched the 83 minute one. Based on the runtime of 70 minutes, I'm theorizing that that version is the O'Bannon cut for the LaserDisc disc edition because mm. that's the closest runtime that it matches. And I watched both versions. In fact, I watched them back to back, if you can believe it. I watched the extended version again, which is probably the version <laughs> I I'm that. familiar with. If it, it would have been so much better if you if you had just talked about one version and then <laughs> we're like, so the other movie I watched was... It would have, yes, but uh, it would have ruined all this contextual nonsense I did. Yeah. You could, you could still have done that. <laughs> and just... I could still have done that. Anyway, please continue. So I watched I watched the extended version again. Uh, my reaction to that was, even though I remember being bored by the alien beach ball sequence when I first watched it to some degree, I still enjoyed it, but I remember going, this kind of drags a little bit. It feels like padding and it, you know, by definition it is padding. <laughs> it's, it it's is. literal padding it that sucks. they added to the film to make it feature length. Um, but I was not bored at all by that section this time around. Well, and I, I quite... I quite well, like Well, Hugh, that everyone has their pace. flaws. <laughs> yeah. 
this isn't Jerry. this isn't like a gleaming diamond of a film. It's a scuffed gem. That's kind of what I like about uh, it. It, it, it wish, has a, an odd development history. I wish it was uh, um, scuffier. It captured, it captured the talents of Carpenter and O'Bannon at this formative stage in their lives, and you know that's there on the screen. Mm. You know you can you can see the talents in both of them evident, and uh, I appreciate that as not just as a time capsule, but as a living and vital work of art. Well. But yeah, so I watched them back to back just to see what the main differences were. And you you theorized on the episode in which you talked about Dark Star that maybe you would like it better if you saw O'Bannon's shorter cut. Right? Mm. But guess what O'Bannon's main issues were? Um, Not the beach ball sequence. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. The sequence were... Possibly because they starred Dan O'Bannon, so maybe he <laughs> didn't want to cut. That's, that's why it's called the Dan O'Bannon cut, cut, right? Hmm. Hmm. Um, and uh, so what he cut was uh, a couple of things that, that Jack Harris specifically requested. And it seems like he may have requested them for plot-based reasons. So one of them is the scene in which the ship comes in contact with, like, interference from an asteroid field. And that causes a malfunction that later results in um, the issues with the bomb, right? Mm-hmm. So that was added. Uh, that was something that I think Jack Harris told them specifically to add. They didn't really have the budget to uh, realize that in any convincing way. So Which part? Sorry, I zoned out a bit. The asteroid section. It comes pretty early in the film. Oh, where they get hit by and the, it's the rocks? It's the bit of the it's the the scene in which the special effects look like a hokey Star Trek episode. Mm. And it kind of stands out among the other special effects, which are not high tech, but they are quite effective in their own way. Mm. And that just has like, it just has like rudimentary animation painted on the frames, essentially. Mm. O'Bannon removed that section and also some other things that were relevant to the sort of more tightly plotted idea of the film that Jack Harris had. Mm. But ultimately, like, as far as I could tell, the entire beach ball sequence was intact. Not cut down at all. So if you found it tedious the first time, you'd find it tedious in <laughs> O'Bannon's uh, cut okay, as well. Well, I'm not going to watch it, so... I think the real shame is that we don't have access to this 95-minute version of the film. Mm. Because this, the, a lot of the stuff in that that is described uh, by some of the participants sounds uh, quite interesting. Maybe it doesn't even exist anymore. But anyway, the point of all this is I loved this film when I first saw it, and I still love this film. Wow, that's good for you. One of my favorite films of all time, can I say? <laughs> Maybe top ten worthy. Wow. I wasn't even bored watching it twice back to back. You know, I think I had a revelation uh, when I was watching one of Jar Carpenter's films this week. Which is that he might be, I except for Orson Welles, he might be my favorite American filmmaker of all time. Hmm. I think that's fair. <laughs> he's 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 just the best who ever did it. I don't know what else to say besides that. <laughs> and, and neither of us talked about this yet, but the the score to Dark Star is is amazing. It's great. Mm. Not just the country song which you did mention. It's a great, which is it's great. A great song. I, that's my favorite part of the, the entire book movie. Ends the film. No, the, I mean, it is it the, is the opening a sequ- great element of the film. The opening sequence. I mean, it is a great element of the film. But the just the the synth score that that Carpenter concocted for it is. Amazing. Very effective. Um, and it contributes to the mood of the film. I think the mood of the film is the thing I like most and the thing I respond to most. 
I could just live inside this film. Mm. That's how I feel about a lot of Carpenter films, actually. He does do a very good sense of place, you know? I think that's what it's probably his best at, is conjuring this specific feel of places. Benson, Arizona. Yeah. All right, are you finished yet? <laughs> and then we can never talk about Dark Star ever again. Mm. Never again. We'll never talk about Dark Star again. I can promise you that. Okay. I actually probably should say if I preferred either version. Mm. Yeah. I would say probably I preferred O'Bannon's version. Uh-huh. I kind of agree with the cuts he made. I don't think it needs to have the malfunction explained like earlier in the film or foreshadowed. I agree. I think it adds to the absurdity if it's just a random malfunction. I agree with that. And uh, oh, one thing that, that stuck out to me in particular was how great the, the scene is where they interact with the cryogenically frozen Captain mm. Amanda Powell. Yeah, that's pretty funny. Such a good scene. And yeah. so well done. Like, it looks great. Yeah, I agree. I agree with you. Anyway, that's it. Dark Star. Great film. Okay. Uh, all right. Better than 2001. Um, I don't agree with that, but <laughs> okay. <laughs> but I don't know. Like, I, I feel like it's it's sort of like, you know, positioned as a 2001 parody, but it really, as I think I said when I discussed it, it feels like a Star Trek parody more than anything. Yeah, I mean, it kind of, it kind of fits both briefs. Um, yeah. It's like an anti-aspirational science fiction tale. Yes. But I just mean like the specific it, it, the the plot mechanics have more to do with Star Trek than they would do two thousand one, you know. Mm. Even if there is like a sentient you know AI coming to life, but mm. there's no element of exploration in two thousand one, you know. Whereas in Dark Star, they're going like you know, throughout the galaxy. They have this like you know years long mission. <laughs> there's even a fucking like captain's log parody. Mm. Um, That's true. Okay. Should I go for it? Or, go for it. Okay. Right. So uh, the first film I'm going to talk about is a little film by uh, cinematic, uh, probably probably the best filmmaker to ever come out of the country of Sweden. I think that's not a uncontroversial. Th- I think that's a pretty uncontroversial thing to say. What about what about uh, name uh, another one? Stroheim. What? Stroheim? I'm, I'm good. No, no, no. I'm going to find the right name. <laughs> I'll name another one. Just give me a second. Give me one second. Uh, okay. Besides Liv Ullman, who has directed like five films. No, yeah. Victor Stroheim. No, oh. no, no, no. Sostrom. Sorry. <laughs> well, however you pronounce his name. Not Stroheim. Not Stroheim. <laughs> Stroheim's a different director. Not even uh, a director. Victor. Just a, just no, a writer. No. <laughs> Yes, Victor Sostrom. Well, I can't say I've Sostrom. seen any of his films, so. But I feel have like, you seen the Phantom Carriage? No, I feel like that's the only film of his that's known. So, uh, ipso facto. Well, anyway, I watched a film uh, directed by the man himself, Mr. Igmar Bergman. Hmm. Uh, I I watched his. Uh, <laughs> I know you're gonna give me shit for this, but his. Uh, originally aired on television miniseries called Scenes for a Marriage. Does this comprise like six <laughs> of your entries this week? <laughs> no. Is, that how you, is this it, a loophole? It, it, it certainly does not. Um, this this does not count as a film. It does. Okay, I'm it letting does. you talk about it, it but you didn't watch it, the it, film yeah. version. No, you did. no, I did. Ta- I, ta- I did watch the film version. In that, the film version is made of every 
all the no. image, all the images that are contained, no. all the images that are contained in the film version no. are taken from the longer version. So therefore, if you didn't watch how it is arranged and edited and paced in the film version, you didn't watch it. <laughs> Fine, I, I'll concede this, but I'm still going to talk about it because otherwise. Okay, so how many films did you watch this week? Twelve. Thirteen. Is that thirteen, including the TV <laughs> yes, show? Caesar of Marriage. Yes, and I'm gonna. No, ca- so it's twelve. It counts as a film. It's twelve. <laughs> no. Twelve is better for our narrative as well, because then you just neatly doubled me. Fine. I, okay, I that's fine. Them. You still beat care. me. You care. doubled me. But I'm gonna talk about Caesar of Marriage. Thirteen anyway. is the unlucky number. Number anyway. I'm gonna so. talk about Caesar of Marriage anyway. I'm allowing you to talk about it. <laughs> because you won this week. <laughs> and I can make the rules. Like, for instance... And essentially you're punishing yourself by talking about television. <laughs> for but instance. Nonetheless. Right. So, uh... Go for it. Scenes for a marriage. I did talk about, like, my hours being reduced and then yeah. coming back briefly <laughs> and, for, like, and, an and, hour. And so. you went on for so long on this podcast <laughs> that no one could give this shit about. <laughs> anyway... <laughs> Uh, and every edition of Dark Star. Yeah, you did. So I can talk about if if you can count one film twice, then I can I can count this many series as a film. And while we're replaying my greatest hits of this episode, uh, don't forget the bit where I'm saying, <laughs> "There's power Shut up. in a union." Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, so seems for a marriage. Uh, so I feel like this is a pretty common uh, the archetype or the uh, relationship that's featured here is one that's. Fairly common in Bergman's oeuvre, right? Can I just ask you, don't drop too many spoilers that might uh, in- inhibit my enjoyment. Are you going to watch it? I am going to watch it. Really? Not imminently, but I will watch it. <laughs> I mean, it's not really a show you can spoil. <laughs> no, I know, but like, if there's any, if there's anything in it that you think might impair my enjoyment, I really, I, it's might not, be better it's experience not a, fresh, then it's please. Not, I mean, the, 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 the pleasures of it are not are not necessarily of the narrative variety. I feel like it's pretty I'm, common. I'm aware of that. I'm just asking you to exercise okay, your okay, judgment okay. about anything you well, think is better. Well, I, I will talk. I will talk that much about it then. Because there, there are some For the sake of not just me, but oh any God, listener I, that I, might I be agreed. enticed I by your possible endorsement. I'll speak generally. Okay. Thank you. But I feel like this is an archetype that Bergman has featured often in his Ufra, which is the married couple that can't stop fighting. Would you agree with that assessment? I feel like it's a pretty common. He's thing. not known for his depiction of happy marriages. <laughs> no, uh, this may be his uh, just in terms of its uh, epic length, uh, his least happy, except for possibly for another film I watched this week, which I'll talk about <laughs> in mm. a moment. But um, so uh, I'll give you a brief sketch of the synopsis. It follows Johan, who's played by Erwin Josephson, and uh, Marianne, who's played by uh, Liv Ullman, and they've been happily married for ten years. Um, they have two wonderful daughters. Uh, the series opens with them getting interviewed, uh, and then they have a, a a couple of their friends over who, uh, after they've had a little bit too much to drink, immediately uh, start fighting, <laughs> and to the point where uh, at one point, um, <laughs> uh, and and the, one of these friends is played by uh, B.B. Anderson, so you get you get some uh, mm-hmm. a, lot, a little bit of a Bergman regular in here uh, alongside you know obviously Earl and jo- Josephson and Liv Ullman were. Also, big collaborators with them. We forgot to mention on our Star Wars episode, but she was really good in uh, The Rise of Skywalker. With Ullman? No, BB Anderson. Oh, sorry, no. That was BB 88. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> I fucking hate you. <laughs> <laughs> 
But the, but your joke is bad because because BB-8 said multiple uh, movies. I know. But uh, you know there is a f former Birdman uh, collaborator who said <laughs> the Force Awakens. Ah, so indeed. <laughs> anyway. Uh, I haven't quite got to the Max von Sydow years of, of Bergman's career. It's funny, I've seen like maybe 10 of Bergman's films, right? But you haven't seen a Max von Sydow one. I've only seen one that he's in. Wow, Because he, um, he, he has a brief role in, in Wild Strawberries. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> I haven't seen any of the ones that he started. I forgot he was in that. Uh, but I think that's going to change because I'm going to watch Hour of the Wolf uh, at some point. That's the next one on my docket. Where does that slot? Uh, it came out in 1960-something. Funnily enough, I just watched a Babylon 5 episode called Hour of the Wolf. Okay, well, I don't, I don't care. To, uh, so, yes, yeah, so they're happily married. They have their friends over. They have this horrible, vicious fight and uh, sort of makes them reconsider uh, aspects of their previously happy marriage. Uh, and, you know, uh, not going to spoil anything, but as you said, Bergman is not... Uh, one known for rosy uh, portraits of marriage, and this is certainly no different than that. Um, but I think it is masterfully edited and shot, and the two lead performances are totally convincing and lovely. Uh, and I think that, you know, uh, ultimately, um, <laughs> I think that, uh, you know, when, when his career started, I think Bergman really liked to focus on the male perspective and making stories about men. Uh, and I think there is a uh, maybe a balance in terms of runtime, but I feel like his side and his avatar in this uh, in this uh, program is actually not the male character, and is probably um, Liv Olba's character, uh, hmm. just because he he makes the male character seem so repulsive and pathetic, uh, which hmm. could just be uh, you know exorcism of his own uh, issues as a person too. So, but. Um, but, uh, you know, it's not... Uh, someone on Letterboxd wrote that uh, he couldn't tell if this series was deeply cynical uh, about marriage or deeply romantic. And, uh, you know, ultimately, I think it's both romantic and cynical at the same time. It's cynical about marriage, but I think it is uh, romantic in that uh, it believes in the possibility of love uh, out, mm. uh, outside of these, this, this, you know, these uh, the horrible structures that we create. Um, and, uh, I think it's fantastic. I think Bergman, you know, this is, it's a very stagey, um, series and obviously, uh, he, he was working on a pretty tight budget. Uh, the sets are, sets are sparse and, you know, they're pretty much the only characters who get any real sense of development, but, uh, and, you know, oftentimes the episodes are confined to one location, but it's wonderfully written, and uh, I think, again, like I said, the two performances are magnificent, and I think it really, um, I don't know, I just thought it was, I thought it was a tremendous work, all in all. How long is the TV series? It's, it's six episodes, and each one's 15 minutes. That's not too bad. No. And you know what, I, I, when I first watched it, I was like, oh, fuck, I can't, I can't watch it. But uh, I think that of, like, the great directors, uh, Pretty much all of Bergman's films are entertaining. <laughs> so. They are, they are. They genuinely are. Um, and most of them, most of the films, not the, obviously this five-hour TV excursion, but most of the films are like a tight 90 minutes. Yes. And it's always pretty tight. <laughs> yeah, except for the two... It doesn't really drag. Except for two films that I talked about, uh, I'm going to talk about later, which are both over 90 minutes. <laughs> but anyway. Yeah. 
Uh, and you know what? I think this show is is fleet and concise, and I think it is is wonderful. So scenes for a marriage. There was a period when I when I first started watching his films uh, in bulk, mm. where it was kind of a comfort just to chuck <laughs> on a random Bergman because he's so consistent as well. That, that's how I feel about that's how I felt about this show actually. At the end of it, I was like, you know what? And at first, I was like, this is going to be a challenge. You know, this could be so hard. It's just going to be these people fighting for fifty minutes, and you know, I don't know opaque like fucking bullshit symbolism and it's it's so long but you know what uh, i think i think it is better not to watch it all at once i think it's better to like space it out over a couple nights you know um but at the end of it i was like this is uh there's yeah it's almost comforting i want to sit there with like a glass of wine and just drink and watch these people be miserable so <laughs> <laughs> um speaking of uh what's my called? Um, I don't know. I'm losing all the names already. <laughs> Liv Ullman. Uh, Eric von Sydow. Star. Eric von Sydow? <laughs> <laughs> Max. Sorry, I'm losing all the names and jumbling them. Eric von Sydow. Speaking of Sydow fronted Bergman films, mm. if I may take another take, um, I highly recommend The Magician. Yeah, I'm going to watch them all, I think. Mm. I, mean, I have that huge box set, so there's nothing to really stop me. It just it just feels it, yeah it, yeah there's something there's something comforting about watching these movies, <laughs> you know you get uh, enough enough uh, stuff enough intellectualism where it feels like you're not wasting your time but again they're entertaining and he's a compelling enough writer where you're like okay yep this is good so yeah I, I think I think a big reason is his stage background and his discipline as yeah. a playwright and a screenwriter um, because it's clear that he's not just wanking yeah. All over, the, all over the film. Like, he's cut it down. He's thought about the scenes and he's thought yeah, about the structure of the sure. film. And he, nothing overstays its welcome in terms of how they're put together, even usually. If, even if I think that, uh, you know, so one of the productive parts of the show is that there is a real tension between the very naturalistic camera work that is, it feels like a Cassavetes film almost, where it's just all these close-ups of people's faces and then, like, the very stagey, like, you know, monologuing and stuff. So I think, there, I think that... that you know, some people complain about Bergman being theatrical, but uh, I don't really care, to be honest. And I think that uh, I think he is more interesting when you when he uses cinema and theatrical like effects in concert and, you know, to create like ambiguity. Yeah, I think the thing is, like when they say he's theatrical, that is true, but he's not merely theatrical. Yeah. He does. He does have something to bring to it as a visual stylist as well. It's 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 usually such a shallow, uh, just uh, read of his work. I think it's just sort of dismissal, dismissive. Because um, often he does compose very striking images and uses editing and other specifically cinematic uh, techniques to his advantage. So he does, uh, especially after he made Persona. But anyway. Okay, so uh, after I watched scenes from Ranger, I paired it with the obviously uh, the obvious like uh, counterpart for a nice double feature, which is I watched Stray Dog uh, Curb, Curb Rose Pants or Cops, <laughs> uh, which is what the, I watched Stray Dog Kerberos Panzer Cops. Okay, okay, <laughs> which is uh, last week I talked about the Baboro Oshi film, The Red Spectacles. And yes. this is a film that uh, is in the same sort of narrative as that. Um, but it's a prequel to that film, uh, and Great. it uh, it's basically just about this soldier who uh, is um, wandering around Taiwan looking for his superior officer who abandoned him, um, 
And, uh, you know, it's just got this great sense of mood. It's got a great uh, Kinji uh, Kawhi score. And, uh, yeah, it's just a nice, nice relaxing experience. <laughs> and has these very, uh, you know, great... Uh, though this film is a lot more serious than its uh, predecessor is. It does have a great uh, punctuation of slapstick violence, which I thought was very amusing, especially when it comes in the middle of this sort of... Uh, you know, it kind of feels like a Taiwanese New Wave film at times. It's very sort of meditative, mm. like lots of cityscapes and people wandering around, you know. Kind of reminded me of... Uh, and also another film that it reminded me of was uh, Takashi Miike's Rainy Dog, uh, which has a similar premise. Um, but, uh, you know, Oshi's kind of known for uh, using voiceover to uh, create sort of like a, a juxtaposition between his images of, you know, people wandering around cities and uh, philosophical discourse. And I feel like he really sort of uh, this is a major turning point for him in terms of bringing that to live action because the Red Spectacles basically doesn't feature that at all. Um, but mm -hmm. uh, I really enjoyed this film a lot. Uh, I think I like the Red Spectacles is a little bit better because it, it feels like it's pushing a little further, and this feels a little more like locked into Oshi's um, style. Um, but it's still very good uh, and uh, funny and odd at times, and uh, you know it's pretty hard to find. But uh, I would recommend people. Check it out. Two thumbs up. Um, the the reason for my random outburst of laughter uh, was nothing to do with what you were saying, but uh -huh. I was reading about the West Wing Weekly. <laughs> uh -huh. I, I think this will make it appeal to you even more. The fact that it features interviews with many cast members and real-life political figures, including Martin Sheen, uh -huh. Aaron Sorkin himself, and Prime Minister of Canada, Justin Trudeau. Uh -huh. Don't you want to race to that episode uh, right now? This this should be the real. This should be the uh, real. Um, Housewives. No, this is this is this is what should cause riots. The fact that the show exists. <laughs> anyway. Uh, yeah. Your your turn, turn. Your again? turn, bro. Just do one though. Just do one. Okay. Uh, so I watched a film called Let There Be Light. Have you heard of that? Uh huh. The uh the John um, what's his name? Not John Holmes. <laughs> the John Huston documentary John about uh, uh soldiers and uh, coming home from World War Two. Is that is that right? Or is that a different film? Did you know that Christopher Walken wanted to make a film about John Holmes, uh, and he wanted Abel Ferreira to direct it? <laughs> I I read about that today. We probably we pro we probably read the same Twitter account tweeting that out. Oh damn! Because I thought because I've been reading Sight and Sound on the toilet these old back issues that I had when I had subscription uh, for a year. I was hoping it was from that, because I did read an article about Abel Ferreira, but obviously it was from the Twitter accounts. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> uh, I, would, I would have watched that movie. I'm not going to lie. Ma imagine Christopher Walken as John Holmes. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, please continue. Uh, so, yeah, I watched Let There Be Light, and you said, <laughs> who do you think it was directed by? <laughs> John Houston. John Houston. No. It's, 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 okay, so it's a different film that I was thinking film. Of. This is the, the Daniel Griffiths Let There Be Light. <laughs> you know Daniel Griffiths, your favourite director? GW <laughs> Griffiths. No, just Daniel Griffiths. <laughs> I can't say that I do. Uh, sorry, I actually didn't give the full title. The full title is Let There Be Light, colon, The Odyssey of Dark Star. <laughs> a feature length documentary about the making of Dark Star. Oh my god. Oh my god. Uh, you, you got me, you motherfucker. <laughs> well, let's hear it. 
Um, yeah, so this was a DVD extra, not on my DVD, but it is available on, on Vimeo or something, wherever. I think it's just on YouTube, actually. Mm. But it was originally part of a DVD release. But it does qualify as a feature because it is a full-length documentary. It, it features like a surfeit of people who were attached to the film in some ways, but it lacks any direct involvement of the two principal creators, John Carpenter and Dan O'Badden. This is actually made after Dan O'Badden's death, so his side of things is, is more understandable, I guess. He might well have involved himself in the production because he seems more interested in it than John Carpenter, I think. Because mm. I think John Carpenter has developed kind of a mercenary attitude over the years. And uh, after fans complained about Dan O'Bannon's cut due to, like, the plot inconsistencies that it apparently created or whatever, he, one of his responses regarding what John Carpenter would think was just to simply say, John, as for John Carpenter, he doesn't give a shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel, like, I feel like he was burned too many times and now yeah. he's just over it. Yeah. I think Darkstar was his first like, passion project that he really struggled to get made. Um, yeah. And then, it, it, you know, it, I think he became a different sort of filmmaker after that. So this documentary has a lot of interesting things in it, but it's not a very good documentary. So, like, it opens with kind of, like, cringe-inducing, like, recreations of scenes from some of the surviving actors and stuff that just, like, drag on forever. <laughs> and mm. um, they made the baffling decision to include Among the Talking Heads an alumni of uh, the, the Southern Californian Film School that they went to, who, who let me stress, was not there at the time that uh, either John Carpenter or Dan O'Bannon were there, but was uh, a, <laughs> a member of the school 10 years later, right? That's pretty funny. So, as you can imagine, his contributions to this documentary, despite the fact that he features prominently, are entirely worthless. Hmm. And I don't know why they bothered including him, given that the film is already probably already too long at two hours, given the amount of uh, interesting content there is to be excavated. Um, so it's definitely worth watching for fans of the film. Uh, and it does include an interview with Jack Harris himself about the changes he wanted made. And it does include most of the detail I know about the 90-minute version that he cut down, uh, which is worthwhile. But... Uh, it's not actually a good documentary. It's a good feature, I guess. There you go. Well, I'm not going to watch it. <laughs> you should watch it. Nope. You gave it a solid three and a half star. <laughs> yeah, but I'm not going to watch a feature week documentary about a film I gave three and a half stars. We bro. should. That's just not how it works. That's just not how it works. All right. All right are you ready for the next two? Fine. Right, one of them I'm not going to talk about much at all because it's a film we actually talked about on the show already at great length. Wow. It's a little John Carpenter film called Ghosts of Mars. <laughs> <laughs> Which, uh, Hugh, uh, I'm just going to say, you know, I think might be a perfect film. Mm. And uh, I'm going to leave it at that. Uh, so I had, a, I had a very great Deadpool feature that day because I watched Ghosts of Mars, of course. Of course. And... Then I watched uh, Terrence Davies' Distant Voices Still Lives. Mm. Appropriate. <laughs> uh, which, yeah, yeah, very. The, you can't think of Ghost of Mars without thinking of Distant Voices Still Lives. But uh, I had purchased the Blu-ray of this a while ago, and I felt like, you know, now it's time to catch up a bit. 
And, uh, you know what? This is, uh, just, just a breathtaking bit of cinema, if I do say so myself. Uh, so... <laughs> really, Terrence? <laughs> if I, if I do say so myself. <laughs> I say, I say, I say. Uh, this, so, uh... It follows uh, this working class family, uh, which is comprised of uh, two uh, sisters, a brother, a mother, and a father. Uh, the father is abusive and surprise, surprise. a very domineering presence. Yeah, uh, and um, it's it's kind of it's kind of a hard film to get into the narrative of because it's not a film you watch for narrative, but. Uh, it's basically divided into two sections. One that surrounds, that's like, like prompted. I guess is a is a better word to put it. It's very, it's quite, sort of a Proustian film in that um, it's motivated mostly by uh, images, no images and dialogue and songs that um, you know not nece- don't necessarily remind the the uh, people that are seeing them or, or viewing these sites, but rather the you know, the cinematic apparatus itself to travel back in time and link it to other images or, or moments that are have, have you know, these, these things in common, right? So it's kind of this, it's, it's sort of this uh, creation of pure memory. Oh, yeah. No, let me finish. <laughs> <laughs> you haven't seen it. You don't even know Terrence Davies. Is. I have heard of this film. <laughs> in fact, this film was at the top of the list of worthy films I never want to watch. <laughs> It's not even that long. <laughs> I know. I look, I, I'm looking it up now. Uh, and I was like, oh, it's only 85 minutes. For some reason, I had I had an yeah. idea that it was like three hours. But uh, nope. Yeah. So it's skip post. You know. So the the father dies, and then it spurs all these memories and things. And then uh, later, the um, one of the sisters has a child, and then that uh, you know uh, creates this other for uh, swarm of memories. And uh, you know, it's 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 kind of a hard film to talk about because it's so bad. No, <laughs> shut the fuck up. It's so predicated on this structure at this, you know, these little flashes of moments and, and scenes, but it just feels so lived in and particular to Davies uh, and beautiful. Uh, and the cinematography is, is terrific, but it uh, it's just this very wonderful picture, this sort of not nostalgic necessarily, but almost anti-nostalgic portrait of of these people's lives of his family's lives you know and um i really enjoyed it a lot i think i'm gonna watch uh, the long day closes next so there you go distant voices still lives now that you've described it as somewhat proustian that does make me mm. more interested in seeing it than i was before yeah you should watch it it's only 85 minutes long yeah I, th- I feel like it's funny that you're more willing to be like i'm gonna watch scenes for a marriage which is like you know <laughs> a cruelly six hours but but no no you can't possibly be bothered to watch a but honestly a like, like Terrence Davies is one of those filmmakers where really without justification because I haven't seen any of his films I've only <laughs> heard them in passing and come across them here and there oh I've like filed into a category of like filmmakers whose work I don't particularly want to investigate <laughs> and you know like that's not there's nothing necessarily rational yeah, about yeah. that and usually when you watch them you're like oh why was I avoiding this this is great yeah, so it's, that's it's like, that was like me and Bergman. Probably so. like that, yeah. But that's the category that he belongs to for me at the moment. But maybe you will sway me to try Distant Voices Still Lives. Maybe. All right, uh, let's hear another one of yours. Let's make it quick, but because but, we, we 
Time, time runs Time short. is flying. Uh, okay. Well, the next film I watched, can you guess? Can you guess? No. Okay. So they're fucking Dark Star Garbage. Nope. <laughs> That's all I guess I have. I, before I, I say the film, I'm going to have to apologize for my uh, nostalgia this week because oh, the film God. I decided to watch was uh, Nostalgia. Gotcha. All right. Which is the only Tarkovsky feature film I hadn't yet seen. <laughs> you know, I watched the I watched the scene at the end of that. Yeah. Uh, and I was like, this this feels like a parody of <laughs> art film to me. So. We'll kind of get to that actually, because you're okay. not entirely wrong. Um, so this is the first film. This is the first film that Tarkovsky made outside of the Soviet Union. Mm. After he left Russia. Um, it's set in Italy, in Italy, and it centers around a Russian writer who is uh, traveling around Italy with a translator. The Russian writer happens to be named Andre, like the director of this film. And uh, at one point, his Italian translator quotes Tarkovsky's father's poems. <laughs> so, yeah, a bit of indulgence going on here. Um, and uh, they end up at this uh, little Italian villa where this uh, mad guy is wandering about. And uh, the story goes that uh, he locked up his family uh, a number of years ago uh, in preparation for the end of the world and wouldn't let them see daylight. Hmm, what, what, what Tartowski film does that remind me of? And then uh, they managed to escape somehow, but he's still there muttering about the end of the world and all sorts of uh, quasi-religious philosophical nonsense. Mm, it sounds like torture. So this writer is, this writer is fascinated by him, right? Mm -hmm. He eventually is able to talk to him after some difficulty, thinking it might help him with his own writings and, and such. Not, I'm not entirely sure if that was the entire reason that he was in Italy in the first place, was to interview this guy, but it doesn't really matter. Hey, Erwin Yos Josephson's in this. Yes, he's the madman. So yeah, he's interviewing the madman, played by Erwin Josephson, as he pointed out, and uh, it turns out that he wants uh, Andre to cross the river, or not river, but this kind of pool at the villa, with a lighted candle. And that's how they'll save the world or something, some shit. <laughs> uh, sounds good so far. So you saw the the famous end sequence. I had seen that as well already. That was the only thing I knew about this film, really. And actually the image of the guy on the statue of the horse on fire. Mm. Um, and that if, based on that, it feels like a parody of an art film. It essentially plays that way, except it doesn't feel like a self-conscious parody of an art film. Whereas... Mm. To some degree, the sacrifice does. I hope there was some intention uh, on uh, Tarkovsky's part uh, for the sacrifice, because the sacrifice has more of a farcical quality at points that feels more directly self-conscious than anything in nostalgia. Given the evidence of the of the films of his that I've seen, uh, seems seems doubtful. But you know, I don't know. There's, I mean, there's not a lot of humor to be found in Tarkovsky's work in general. No, no, just, just time and sculpting, sculpting in, and sculpting right? in time. <laughs> there's, there's certainly always a, a portentous quality to his work. Mm. Sometimes that works for the material and sometimes it doesn't. 
I found this kind of a not a, not a difficult watch and parts of nostalgia do work for me because I'm this nostalgic type I guess but mm. I don't think this is a very successful film and yeah it pretty, the rest of the film pretty much does play out as you might expect it's kind of like an algorithmically generated uh, Tarkovsky film it, it, it re- replete with like you know uh, glacial pans across uh, an array of objects yeah, I, I, sh- I shan't be watching this one, I think. <laughs> but there is, like, this, this the bit where it feels, like, almost intentionally self-prodded is this long scene in which uh, the guy eventually, you know, makes good on his promise to cross the river with a lighted candle. And it's, like, a windy day, and it's one take, tracking back and forth. And he goes, like, halfway there, and then the candle blows out. So he walks all the way back, and then he goes again, the candle blows out. He goes all the way back again, and then eventually makes it to the end, and then dies of a heart attack. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then, like, and then um, the madman, Erlen Josephson, goes to, like, the centre of Rome and starts declaiming his mad prophecies atop a statue of a horse, and then sets himself on fire. Nice. And it kind of feels like, as it does in The Sacrifice, um, that Tarkovsky uses fire as kind of a visual crux when he's run out of interesting visuals. Because <laughs> it, it, and, and that, you know, it just felt like, I don't really know what else to do with this, this premise I've assembled, but I'll just set this guy on fire, it'll look nice for a bit. And it'll, it'll be somewhat dramatic. <laughs> I did like the candle scene, it was kind of funny, but <laughs> I'm sure it was meant to be. <laughs> Uh, I sort of managed to enjoy this like at points yeah the last shot just felt like wank to be honest I feel like that's that's how I feel about all of Tarsowski's films that I've seen actually (laughs) which is to say just stalker and mirror and that's it I did rewatch mirror when I was preparing for my short film actually Mm. and I didn't like it as much the second time there you go I, th- I think he kind of needs to be tempered by a genre element. Mm. So I think that's why his more successful films are Stalker, Solaris, and like in the historical fiction case of like Andre Rublev, to kind of temper the pretentiousness a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, so I watched, uh, I watched, I followed my uh, one John Carpenter film with another one. Uh, which is I watched one of his uh, his more obscure works, which is a compilation of uh, made for television shorts that he and Tobey Hooper directed that was re-edited into a feature film oh. called Body Bags. Interesting. Yeah, uh, and um, wouldn't you know it? The two Carpenter film shorts. One of them is uh, a great little micro slasher uh, called Gas Station, which is uh, very enjoyable. It's kind of just like. Uh, very self-conscious, like, riff on, like, Halloween, and has all these, like, funny, fun cameos by horror people, like, uh, Wes Craven comes up and plays a pervert for a little bit, <laughs> and, uh, Sam Raimi plays a dead body and, uh, a, uh, portrait, and, um, the main guy from, uh, American Werewolf in London shows up, too, uh, and, uh, you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's fleet, it's fun. Uh, and then uh, the other film of his that is included this is called Hair uh, which is this really bizarre <laughs> short film uh, starring uh, Stacy Keach who plays a man who is uh, let's say challenged uh, 
he's he's going bald, and um, you know he's he uh, has uh, a very wounded sort of masculine pride, and he sees these ads on television played by Star Trek Six David War, yeah, Star Trek Five and Six's David Warner, for this new hair treatment. Uh, he decides to get it, and uh, let's just say things don't work out. Uh, what do you want? Uh, you know, I feel like, uh, you know, Carpenter definitely has a sense of humor, uh, it, but it's rare to see him work in such a, uh, purely comedic tone as, as in this short film. Uh, and, uh, it's very, it's very goofy and weird, but, uh, you know, it has its, uh, moments of horror, but, uh, ultimately it's just this very goofy, like it has all these gross practical effects too, but it's very goofy and funny, uh, and good stuff. And then, uh, you know, th- there's the reason why I, gave, I ultimately gave this film three stars, you know? Mm-hmm. Which is the Toby Hooper short film, uh, which is very bad. <laughs> uh, it's called I, and it stars Mark, uh, not Mark Wahlberg, Jesus, Mark Hamill, as a baseball player who gets in a car accident, uh, gets his eye knocked out, and then uh, wouldn't you know it, he has an experimental surgery that uh, replaces his non eye with uh, the eye of a serial killer. And then he starts great. seeing things. <laughs> Yeah, you know, uh, it's 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 exactly that Simpsons uh, Treehouse of yeah. Horror episode where Homer gets the hair transplant. It's exactly that. <laughs> um, but uh, it's just kind of it's it's like the the first. I mean, you know, the the first film is like scary in like a fun way, uh-huh. and this one's just kind of gross and and uh, gruesome in a way that doesn't fit with the rest of the films. Uh-huh. I don't think, and it kind of sinks it, uh, even though I think Hamill gives it his all. Uh, and there's just, there's this the only memorable image for the entire short is him having sex with a corpse, <laughs> which I didn't think I would see. And uh, you know he commits a fair amount because he he does just give uh, you know uh, ass nudity here. So wow. if you ever wanted to see that, it's uh, <laughs> worth watching for that reason. Uh, and there's also a great scene where uh, he uh, goes to the library to like research um, <laughs> the killer whose eye he's received, and. Um, he's looking at this microfilm and the camera is like facing towards him. It's like a medium shot of his like, you know, face pointed towards the computer. And he he just starts reading the information out loud to himself. That was really funny. It's like, Oh, there's no other way that you can show us this. You're just going to have him read it, I guess. Um, And the only other notable thing about this, I mean, it is literally like the Simpsons, like parody. Uh, but the only other thing notable is that Roger Corbin has a as a cameo as a Dr. Bergman, which I think is especially funny because uh, <laughs> Corbin actually distributed, I think, a couple of uh, Bergman's films to the States, including Cries and Whispers. So hmm. you should you should excerpt the scene of uh, Hamill fucking a corpse and put it on Twitter as like a lost Return of the Jedi outtake. <laughs> <laughs> we Will do. Oh, and Twiggy plays his wife for some reason. So, <laughs> okay, <laughs> okay I, I I'll give it this too. It does have a hilarious um, the sequence where he loses his eye is also really funny. <laughs> it's a stormy night, and he's reaching over to get his cassette tapes. <laughs> it's just like, okay, buddy, you're gonna have a car accident now. So there's one more Toby Hooper short in it, or not? No, it's only it's only three. Oh, okay. Uh, and I will say that uh, another another source of the the enjoyment of this film is that it has it, it stars the the like um, connective tissue is John Carpenter playing sort of a crypt keeper esque like horror host, <laughs> <laughs> making all these like 
really dumb jokes, including there, there's a great one that I thought was really funny where he's trying to open a uh, like a drawer because he's playing this um, mortician. He's like, what are these body bags? Oh, this one got hurt by, you know, mm-hmm. is, is there's too much hair or whatever. Um, but he's trying to open this this drawer, you know, that holds a corpse. And um, <laughs> he can't because cause the, the woman has breast implants and they're too big. <laughs> that was, which is obviously really dumb, but I thought it was funny. I'd and he, love he, to watch this film on television like after midnight. Sounds great. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's enjoyable. But the Toby Hooper segment, it's like kind of kills it, unfortunately. I do really want to see Life Force. Uh, the Toby Hooper film that Daniel Baden wrote. I want to watch Spontaneous Combustion. That's the Toby Hooper film I'd like to watch. Mm. But um, it, I think it would be better. I think I'd be better disposed to the film if it, if it put the Toby Hooper short first, actually. Yeah. Because <laughs> then, then it would be like, oh, I got the crap out of the way. Now I can watch the good mm. ones. Um, all right. So uh, then uh, I followed that up with the third film in the... Uh, Female Prisoner Scorpion series. Uh, I've talked about these films enough, I think, but uh, needless to say, this is another uh, great entry um, and uh, has a... I, I feel like these films are like the perfect accompaniment to the present moment of uh, police brutality in a way because all the police officers are, are scum and uh, deserving only of death. Uh, and this film opens with a great scene where the um, protagonist cuts a police officer's arm off after it gets stuck she has, basically she's on the run and um a police officer like stops her and she's on the like a, a bullet or a um a subway train and uh, she runs off but the cop manages to put uh handcuffs on her um and she like runs out of the train and uh the subway doors close on this guy's hand but obviously she can't get away because he's cuffed to him so she takes out a kitchen knife and just hawks his arm off and it's pretty incredible <laughs> um but uh, this is probably the one that makes her feel the most like a human being. And I think it's uh, remarkable for that reason. Uh, and uh, you know what? Uh, not many films have... Uh, th- th- this film also contains a pretty strong argument for why women should have control over their own bodies in terms of abortion, too, which mm. I was quite fond of. Uh, not, you don't see too many films arguing that. And I don't, I don't really know what the legality of the... Um, a political sort of uh, struggle for abortion was in Japan, but uh, I I really felt it, um, and uh, it's a it's a good film. Yeah, I I I'm really fond of these films. Uh, unfortunately, the last one has kind of a, a bad reputation because it was directed by someone else, mm. but uh, I'm gonna watch it anyway. So that's uh, female prisoner scorpion colon beast stable. Uh, I watched the kid, which is Chaplin's first. Uh Feature film. You watched it and you talked about it on the podcast before, I believe. <laughs> In the early days, it must have been. The only version you can really watch of the kid, it seems to me, is the 1972 re-edit, or early 70s re-edit, that Chaplin did. So, the kid's good, I will say. It's hard to fault. Yeah, I don't know if we need to, to get into detail. Yeah, I don't need it. to talk about it too much detail. Like, I, I, I tend to resist Chaplin mainly because of the way he is used in those dedication to cinema montages at the Oscars. Like, <laughs> whenever enough. you see his face doing that stupid smile, you, you can you, you can just like hear the swirling the you know swirling strings of yeah. that, do, that horrible, do, 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 horrible do. you know nonsense. Um, yeah. which always put me off. And obviously I'm in the Keaton camp, you know that. The yeah, the kid the kid is a is a is a pretty successful, especially for a debut feature 
What's What's interesting to me though is the scenes that he removed for his re-edit are actually quite important to the balance of the film. And uh, without it, it causes quite a few issues. Fortunately, I was able to watch the missing scenes separately. Um, but there doesn't seem to be any versions that include them as they were originally integrated. But anyway, basically, he removed a lot of the scenes with the, the woman who gives up her child at the start of the film. Mm. And, it, and it's weird because in the version, the 1972 version, there's this early scene where we see the lover of the woman, who's a painter, and, like, her photo gets burnt in the fire. And then he never reappears again. And like, what was the point of that scene? That added nothing to this film. And the point of it was that it betrays the original version of the film in which he does resurface at some point. And we do see a resolution to that particular plot. Um, and also, it, the film kind of needs to have some of the scenes where she's really struggling with the decision she's made. And, you know, she's even contemplating suicide at one point, looking over a bridge... And it shows the progression from her earlier act to the regret and um, depression around that and then her eventual reuniting with the baby. So I don't quite understand why he removed those scenes, maybe just to make the film more about him. Well, he, yeah, you know, at that, at that point he, was, he, he had married a child and that seems to sort of weaken one's artistic sense. He'd married a couple of children by that point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, he even redid the... T I mean, it was normal to redo the titles uh, for these re-releases, but in this case, he removed the titles that had, like, charming illustrations in the original version, which is a bit of a loss as well. Yeah. So, there you go. Pretty good stuff. Your turn. Sounds like garbage. All right, uh, let's see here. What did I watch? All right, the next two films that I put down on my old thing watch was uh, I watched another Bergman film, oh. a film called... is Actually, his very final film, you. Wow. You're going all over the place. Yeah, it's called Sarabad. I mean, there's a very particular reason I watched this film, mm -hmm. which is that it is, in fact, a sequel to Scenes for a Marriage. Oh, that's right. Uh, and it picks up back up with the story of uh, Marianne and... Um... Hang on, this is also a TV movie. Nope. Uh, maybe, but who cares? No, TV movies count as movies. You can't, you can't deny mm. this. It was released theatrically in the States, so fuck you. <laughs> so you watched 11 yeah. films this week. Less than double. Uh, no, I watched. I watched twelve. <laughs> Sarah, Sarah Man is definitely a film. I mean, I guess I did watch two tip. versions of Dark Star and a documentary <laughs> about Dark Star, yeah, which comprised that probably, half probably of the films I watched this week. <laughs> so you have no leg to stand on. Uh, anyway, so Sarah Man. Uh, I don't. I'm not going to talk too much about it because uh, to to get into the plot really would spoil okay. uh, Caesar Marriage for you. But uh, I think this is a uh, very um, good film. That's good. <laughs> that That's enough. Uh, yep. All right. Great. It's definitely worth watching. If you do decide to watch Seeds for Marriage, I think you should watch Sarah Band as well. Because mm -hmm. uh, I think it, it does bring the two people uh, who are the stars of that film slash miniseries. Is that it brings their lives to appropriate conclusions. Okay. Uh, and has a very uh, depressing final moment, I think. Mm, nice. Depressing and movie at the same time. Nice. Uh, Down for then, that. And then, on that same day, I watched the almost exact opposite of 
uh, Sarah Bed, which is <laughs> the Choi Hark film, Dangerous Encounters of the First Kind, which is a reference to uh, the Hong Kong uh, Wad Hong Kong in the 1960s, which uh, basically that was the title they used to describe people who used explosive devices. Okay. Now, this is a very bizarre film about a, a trio of teenagers who um, <laughs> basically decide to make a bomb and put it into a movie theater. And it explodes. Uh, no one is hurt. Um, but it attracts the t- attention of this sociopathic girl who basically goads them into letting her, uh, her join them. And they do all sorts of mayhem stuff that eventually leads them into trouble with some uh, foreign gangsters. Uh, and this is a very bizarre film that Troy Hark made uh, about these people and about the girl's brother who's a police officer. Uh, it's a very sort of redolent, less of typical Hong Kong genre fare and more of like a um, kind of like a French new wave film. Mm. Uh, often this is like put as like a Hong Kong new wave that's like a label that's affixed to it and then it's kind of i mean one of the problems with watching it is that the version that exists that because uh it features a lot of like a like political commentary and also uh you know there's scenes where they make volatile cocktails and uh bomb theaters and stuff like that and these are like the ostensible like uh you know protagonists of the film so before it was uh released the uh, movie centers at the time uh, was released in 1980, I think. Yes. Um, forced uh, Hark to make or to cut it out. Around. I don't know if he did it himself, but basically a lot of the film got cut out. Uh, and from my understanding, years later, when a French company wanted to put it out on DVD, uh, they went to it and were like, okay, do you have another copy of this? And he discovered that he had a VHS copy of... Um, the film as originally intended to be released. Mm. Uh, so the version that I watched has sequences that, you know, are uh, DVD quality. So, which is to say, you know, passable enough. Uh, and then it is edited together with these uh, basically, you know, totally trash VHS <laughs> sequences, uh, which, you know, what I would, I would love to see a, uh, I mean, I'm sure it probably doesn't exist, but a properly restored, restored version of this film. Mm-hmm. Because uh, it's it's pretty uh, very entertaining, uh, and I think this very sort of blast of like uh, nihilism and energetic nihilism uh, from Hong Kong at the time. That's interesting, uh, and I really enjoyed it a lot. Uh, and um, it uses uh, the Goblin score from Dawn of the Dead to great effect. <laughs> so, uh, very interesting little film. I had no idea that he, like, started making that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, he started with a, a Wuxia film, actually. Oh, uh, yeah, he did the Butterfly Murders. Yeah, and then he had a zombie movie. Uh, but it does it it does feel like it matches that feeling of total societal collapse that Dawn of the Dead goes for, mm. uh, which is, is pretty impressive for a film that's kind of, you know, low budget. Um, and, yeah, good stuff. Interesting. What, what else did you watch? Very interesting. Uh, so we're up to my last film. Oh god, did I ever have to marathon my way through five films? <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yep. Um the last one I watched was another Chaplin film, The Circus. Mm. Which is the last film he made actually in the silent era. City Lights was a silent mm. film made during the sound era. And uh, I was actually surprised looking at his filmography 
about how few films he actually made across over the course of his life. He really didn't make yeah. that many. Well, that's because he, he had he had total artistic control. He was a control freak. And he would yeah he would do like fifty takes per scene, at least. I mean, he, he did a ton of films in the silent era when he wasn't directing movies, but. You mean a ton of shorts? Yeah, whatever. Yeah. Same difference. But he didn't do a ton of features. He did like no. four or five just during the sound era, which is kind of insane. I mean, during the silent era, which is insane compared to the other um, silent clowns. All right, the circus. Let's, let's get on with it, bro. <laughs> let's get on with the circus. Uh, the circus is, is uh, hard to fault, actually. Mm. So it's a, it's a simple story of the tramp um, becoming involved with a circus because he is in, inadvertently hilarious to the crowd. The sort of interesting thing about the film thematically is that when he's like employed as a clown for the circus and he knows that that's his role, he can't actually be funny to the crowd. Uh-huh. So the self-consciousness ruins his art. He's undeniably good at what he does. I don't always find it that funny, like it doesn't induce that much uh, laughter from me, even when I can recognise stuff is clever and well executed. But there is a sequence in the middle of this where <laughs> he's filling in for like a tightrope walker and mm. <laughs> it won't sound as funny as it is, but I, I, I did actually cry to the point of tears nearly at uh, a bunch of monkeys uh, pulling his pants down. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like that Nathan for you gag yes it, it does a little bit that's the circus now what are your final five films quickly you've got three minutes yeah I'm gonna get through these real quick knock him out of the park uh, alright so uh, I watched one of your favorite films of all time Dark Star nope Wheels on Meals yeah uh, the Jackie Chan Young Yun Biao and uh, Samo Hung team up film, which is semi inexplicably set in Spain. <laughs> That's the best part. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, I feel like all the films that they're in together have a very similar sort of uh, comedy tone, and this definitely does not deviate from that. Uh, I enjoy the weird, inexplicable elements, like the fact that they have this high tech computer van <laughs> that they're. <laughs> I just, I just love that they're just that they're all just like living in Spain. <laughs> that that Samo Hung is a private detective <laughs> whose name is Moby, <laughs> uh, and um, you know it's it's just got a good flavor. Uh, and what's her name from um, uh, Project or uh, from Armor of God? Uh, Lola Forner is like mm. the love interest in this tale. Um, it's got some great fights, some great gags. What what more could you want in a movie? Some bizarre fashion choices by Yun Biao and uh, Samo Hung. <laughs> Uh, and, uh, you know, I thought it was funny. I thought it was good. And I like that, uh, you know, I feel like, um, like Product A and, uh, Dragons Forever definitely feels like Jackie Chan is the lead character in those, you know? But, uh, in this, uh, it feels more balanced. It feels like almost, like he, he his character almost has the least about to do, honestly. So, yeah, th- I, little, I actually think weird. this is the best uh, Yang Bio, Samahong, Jackie Chan vehicle. Mm. Not necessarily the best film that they've all appeared in together, but the best vehicle for the unique chemistry that they bring as a trio. Yes, I, I agree. <laughs> I love that this is a film where they get prop- where Jackie Chan and Yang Bio get propositioned by a uh, prostitution I think it's really funny. <laughs> uh, there's a the great scene where they let Lola Forner uh, spin the night on her couch and she's like, okay, which one of you is going to be first? <laughs> that was really funny. But, um, 
Yeah, it's good stuff. Uh, and then I watched one of another one of Bergman's more obscure films. Uh, this one made in his tax exile period in Germany, in West Germany. You're doing Bergman a disservice by watching that after Wheels on Meals because it, it couldn't possibly live up to it. <laughs> well, I don't think I... I, I guess I did watch it on the same day. Uh, but I watched... Uh, yeah, uh, so uh, it's called From the Life of the Marionettes. And uh, the reason I watched this is that it's, it's sort of a pseudo-sequel to... Uh, uh, Seeds for a Marriage, and it follows uh, the couple, the bickering couple who um, are the inciting incident of that earlier film. Uh, or it follows, like, versions of them anyway that have been displaced to Germany. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're this unmarried couple who uh, apparently his marriage is going fine, but, uh, <laughs> the, oh, well, what should happen? But the male member of it murders a prostitute who happens to share the same name of his wife. Uh, and, um, <laughs> You know, uh, I think that uh, of Bergman's films, at least the ones that I've watched, this, this one is probably the bleakest. <laughs> in that it seems to have no... If, if Seas for a Marriage is full of emotional violence and sometimes physical violence, at least there seems to be some hope that, um, you know, someone might forge a human connection. Um, but in this film, uh, especially the male character uh, seems totally hopeless and basically this uh, pathetic totally repressed guy who can't who, who the only way for him to access his emotions and sort of like get out of the emotional trap that he's put himself in is to murder a prostitute so it's very bleak okay. uh, uh and um it doesn't really seem to have much hope for anyone um but uh i think this it's it's kind of interesting uh turn for bergman because you know i mean obviously like like he is one to do he gives a lot of attention to the female character he's or the female main character is almost a more developed human being than uh, the male character is in a lot, a lot of respects. But he also it also has a prominent uh, gay supporting character, which I was not expecting at all. Um, he was uh, treated pretty, um, uh, you know, non-stereotypically, I think. Oh, so that's good. Yeah. Um, and yeah, like I said, it's 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 a bleak film. Uh, it does not have very rosy uh, <laughs> uh, sort of. Um, uh, predictions or uh, diagnosis for the human race, and uh, it made me kind of depressed after I watched it. So that's from the life of the marionettes. Then I uh, followed that up with the obvious film that comes after that, which is the, uh, Shinya Tuskamoto uh, mid-length uh, experimental film called The Adventure of Dinchu Kozo, which in English is The Adventure of Electric Rod Boy. <laughs> As you might imagine for that title, it sort of uh, prefigures to some degree the sort of themes and the style that uh, Tsukamoto would uh, perfect in Tetsuo the Iron Man. Uh, But unlike that film, which is uh, pretty serious, uh, this film is very goofy (laughs) and it's about a uh, kind of a loser uh, schoolboy who uh, is bullied because he has a electric pylon growing out of his back. (laughs) And... (laughs) And this uh, female uh, student or um, fellow student of his uh, who wields a samurai sword beats up his uh, uh, his bullies. And uh, he then uh, is like, oh, you know, as a reward for saving, here's a time machine that he activates his time machine. And he goes to the future where vampires have taken over the world. And... uh, Basically, he has to use the powers of his electric pylon to defeat them, <laughs> and it's 
uh, very wacky, but it has a lot of the same stylistic things that would, uh, you know, come to to full bloom in Tetsuo. It uses a lot of like stop motion uh, and some very wonderfully handmade special effects. And I very, very much enjoy the handmade feeling of this film. Uh, and I think it's a pretty uh, perfect length at 45 minutes. Uh, I I enjoyed it a lot. Uh, and uh, yeah, that's the adventure of uh, Dinshu Kozo. Uh, and then I watched one more film that day. Uh, which is uh, the film that George Romero uh, made one of probably the most prominent horror film he made in between um, or probably the most prominent film he made in between uh, Night of the Living Dead and Dawn of the Dead, which is called The Crazies. Hmm. Uh, in a lot of ways, it does feel kind of like a dry run for Dawn of the Dead uh, and that it's about this infectious agent that gets uh, let out in the small town in Pennsylvania called Evanstown. Or Evansville, or Evans City. I don't remember, but it doesn't matter. But uh, so basically, the town gets quarantined. What? Uh, and Just like the us. disease has the side effect of making the uh, <laughs> population go crazy. Uh, so the film sort of is bifurcated. Uh, half of it sort of shows the um, very incompetent and uh, violent response that the government uh, tries to do to contain the infection uh, by like rounding up all the the uh you know citizens of the town and um you know establishing a perimeter and possibly nuking the area uh in the event that they can't contain it uh and the other half uh shows um the attempts to get out of the town by this uh green beret and his young wife and uh his friend whose name is clank for some reason (laughs) uh and, uh, you know, it's a pretty effective uh, film. Uh, I watching it uh, this close to see, you know, so many uh, images of protest and sort of what seems like societal collapse. Mm. Not that the protesters are causing societal collapse, but the, you know, government uh, government's attempts to contain them, I feel like, is is what makes reminds me more of this film than anything. Um, maybe, maybe it's kind of a fraught viewing experience and just how violently the government... Uh, no, and tries to enforce its will and how ineffectively it does it and how like um you know obviously this is a problem that the government caused by itself because it inadvertently released this agent uh made me uh i don't know just had some just just had it made me feel things i guess is what i'm trying to say mm. um but you know it's just uh i think romero is a great at getting tension out of his low budgets and the uh, locales that he chooses to set his films, and uh, I think that this is a pretty pretty good one. So that's the crazies. Uh, and then I watched one more film, which I watched earlier today, which is called, which is uh, Water Hills Southern Comfort, which is a film, another film that had sort of had some resonances, uh, given current events, because it is about a uh, like platoon of National Guardsmen who. Um, basically uh, are doing this training exercise where they have to trek across the bayou in Louisiana. And they um, basically they find that weather patterns have shifted the area in a, not in accordance to their map. And the part they have to get across is this is supposed to be sort of dry land. And said so it's, you know, very watery. Uh, so they uh, borrow quote unquote, uh, some locals canoes and, um, then uh, one of the men decides uh, it'd be a fun game to open fire using the machine gun. That's they, all of their guns are filled with blanks uh, at a hunter uh, after at a Cajun hunter who is, you know, just hanging out nearby. 
Uh, and this hunter responds by ducking down and then popping back up to shoot the uh, brains out of their commanding officer. Uh, and then these uh, National Guard men have to, uh, you know, survive uh, being hunted by these um, people who know the land much better than they do. Uh, and uh, it's just this great sort of grimy uh, existential like uh, thriller um, that, uh, you know, it's definitely sort of a Vietnam War allegory that's going on here. But uh, I feel like it's most effective as just this uh, pure sort of thriller. And uh, Powers Booth, uh, who's and Powers Booth and Keith Carradine sort of play the uh, soldiers who become the lead characters, and uh, they're both really great. So uh, Southern Comforts, just a grimy, violent film with the great uh, sort of, you know, Southern fried soundtrack. So there you go. That's it. That's all I watched. Well, I'm gonna hit the stop recording. Thanks for listening, guys. Yeah, you still with us? Nope. Uh. Well, bye to you then. Oh, friend. Oh.